In 2015, I found myself at the UN climate change negotiations outside Paris. I went there as a journalist to see if leaders from around the world could pull off what they've been trying to do unsuccessfully since the early 1990s, which is to come to an agreement about how to end the fossil fuel era and push the world toward net zero carbon emissions. Another way to say that, they were trying to finally do something about the climate crisis. There were lots of platitudes and promises, but no one really knew for sure if an agreement would be reached. The negotiations went into overtime. And then late on the night of December 12th, the conference center erupted in cheers. Toasts were made, diplomats who'd been working on this issue their whole lives, they hugged each other and cried. Now, six years later, much of the daunting work still remains. The world has promised to hold global temperatures well below two degrees Celsius. But are governments actually going to do enough? Can this peer pressure agreement without real penalties push them to do so? And will the rich countries do their part to help poor countries adapt to a warming world? It's tempting to look a problem as big as the climate crisis in the face and want to turn away. It's also easy to oversimplify things and hope that one heroic leader or one new piece of legislation or technology will come along and save the day. That's probably not going to happen. But it is possible for humanity to face this threat and respond with courage. I'm John Sutter, and that's what this season of Heat of the Moment is dedicated to. The big thinkers and doers who are leading the charge to show that remaking the world economy is both possible and necessary. A world without fossil fuel pollution is one that is both safer and more equitable. The fact that these are global problems that no country, no matter how rich, can protect itself from. It might seem difficult, but we can overcome, and especially if we do this together. I didn't know I was being part of the problem. I thought I was being part of the solution. If I knew then what I know now, I wouldn't be doing it. Little things build up to a bigger thing. We have to do our part in our capacity to assure that there will be a better future for the generations to come. Humans are pretty good when their backs are against the wall, and we get really good at things quickly. What happened with fishing was we got too good at fishing, and let's just get too good at climate solutions. One of the more interesting storylines that came out of the Paris negotiations was that countries most affected by the climate crisis, including some island nations that may disappear beneath rising seas, they banded together to push for more ambitious climate targets. We're small in size, but our voices are large when it comes to the climate change negotiations. That's Dr. Colin Young. He was formerly the head of Belize's environmental ministry, where he spearheaded initiatives both to prepare for and adapt to the climate crisis. These days, he's head of the Caribbean Community Climate Change Center. In Paris, the group, which represents 15 Caribbean nations, stood united on their demands. It is because of the hard work of our negotiators that we were able to get the 1.5 temperature goal within the Paris Agreement. Building community has long been Young's focus. You could even say it runs in his family. You see, he grew up on a nature reserve for black howler monkeys. His parents founded this reserve to protect these monkeys when they were on the endangered species list. They aren't anymore. And his parents' success at encouraging others to get involved in this cause showed him the importance of bringing people together to try to solve a problem. I took that lesson of the need to engage and consult and have people at the forefront of development 
so that we can positively impact their lives. This work that I do know, while it's at a different scale, I think the tenets of those lessons that I learned in those early days are absolutely still important. We have to look at climate change as a global issue, but some areas are more vulnerable and being impacted more than others. For vulnerable countries like island nations in the Caribbean, the stakes of the COP26 climate negotiations are high. Their very existence is threatened. When you look at droughts, when you look at the increasing heavy precipitation events, sea level rise, more vulnerability from hurricanes, the Caribbean is, as a whole, is very vulnerable to these effects of climate change. Yet, Young says that what happens to small island nations reverberates throughout the world. When climate disasters upend populations, the whole world feels those shockwaves. The security of the world is at stake because as we have seen and we will continue to see, if there is not peace and if there is instability and if there is all these droughts and disasters that are causing people to flee, they will have to go somewhere. So what can wealthier countries and institutions, those that have done the most to cause the climate crisis, do to support vulnerable countries like those in the Caribbean? This has been a driving question in much of the climate talks and is a central issue for Rachel Kite, who currently is dean of the Fletcher School at Tufts University and former lead negotiator for the World Bank at the Paris Climate Talks. Well, it's the ultimate global commons problem. It happens to everybody everywhere. And so to solve it, we have to all come together. And the only way to come together is for everybody to be part of the solution. And we haven't been very good at everybody being part of the solution in this international regime that we've sort of built up since the middle of the 20th century. While this year's climate convention, COP26 in Glasgow, might feel like a whole new beginning in terms of the world's commitment to solving the climate crisis, it's actually built on decades worth of work to try to find consensus across borders. I asked Dean Kite to help us understand how things have evolved to this point. Well, there's been scientific observations around elements of climate change and elements of carbon pollution and what that does going back decades and decades and decades. Stockholm, Sweden, June. Diplomatically, 50 years ago next year in 1972, the first United Nations Conference on the Human Environment. Environment became an issue of international negotiation and international discussion for the first time. It's clear that the environmental crisis which is confronting the world will profoundly alter the future destiny of our planet. The origins of the climate regime trace back to then the late 80s and early 90s when you had the first world climate conferences which led then to the agreement that there would be a framework convention on climate change coming out of the Rio Earth Summit in 1992. The world is our garden and together we must cultivate it. This week at Rio we have made a start. We cannot be complacent unless the agreements reached here are accompanied by real commitments to significant change. And then since then, we've been on a steady drumbeat of every year having a conference of the parties to bring us together to work out who's going to do what to whom in order to wrangle the climate crisis under control. And while we have met as those conference of parties, so we have continued to pollute with incredible vigour, actually. And large part of the problem that we're dealing with right now has actually emanated from the emissions since 1992. 
And so Paris was really about a conversation and an agreement of all parties on the what. What exactly is the scope of the problem and the solution to the problem? And therefore, the result in Paris was an agreement that we had to curb emissions in order to halt warming at well below two degrees. So that was the what. And since then, since 2015, what we've been struggling with is the how. Uh, who's responsible for which bit of the how, how urgent is the how, who's going to do it. A lot of the how falls outside of the domain of intergovernmental negotiation. A lot of the how lies in the hands of the private sector and communities and cities. And so now we have this situation where we've got the whole world involved in a quote-unquote race to zero, but also trying to find ways to go faster, to go more inclusively, to bring everybody in. And I think that's what we've seen the world struggling with over the last five to six years. In terms of the what of the Paris Agreement, I like that way of putting it. I mean, I think one of the things that came out of that was sort of this North Star goal, as you mentioned, of two degrees Celsius of warming or ideally 1.5 or well below that. And I think there's been a lot of science that's come out since then that just underscores how quickly the world has to remove carbon from the global economy in order to have any chance of meeting that goal. And, and so I'm wondering if you can talk just a little bit more about like what that actually means, what, what, what it would take to keep the world below two degrees of warming. Well, going into Paris, two degrees itself was a subject of heated conversation. There were a lot of people going into Paris who thought that two degrees was too ambitious. And there were a lot of people, especially from the most vulnerable countries in the world, who were saying, we've got to go below two degrees. And the origins of the High Ambition Coalition was this sort of phrase of 1.5 to stay alive. Now, to get to 1.5 by mid-century, because that's where we put the economy back in chemical balance with the planet, means that we have to cut emissions by half, really, this decade. That means that we have to rapidly decarbonize our electricity systems and we have to electrify as many things as we can off that clean electricity it means that we have to find solutions to high heat processes in steel and aluminum and cement and all of the things that we use to build this modern world. It means we have to bring to a halt to the greatest extent possible deforestation because every tree plays such a fundamental role in nature's ability to absorb those carbon emissions that we've put into the atmosphere. And then, of course, I think the high politics will be, especially after COP, how are we going to deal with removals? Because if we're not very good at stopping emissions escaping into the atmosphere, then we're going to have to get really, really good at removing them. But removing them is much more expensive than stopping them emitting. And of course, all of this is in the second part of the Paris Agreement, which was that we would leave no one behind. This wasn't a 1% solution for the 99%. This was a vision that in order for this to work, then everybody has to be able to see an opportunity for prosperity in a greener world. If they can't take care of their needs and protect their families in a world that's decarbonizing, the proposition is dead on arrival. And so that equity and justice, especially because those people didn't cause the problem, is a fundamental issue, complicating perhaps, but fundamental. I'm glad you raised that. I mean, I was in Paris covering the climate talks for CNN at the time, and one of my takeaways was the surprise and awe at the degree to which like this moral clarity and moral voice from some of the really vulnerable countries, especially the Marshall Islands and some other Pacific nations that 
may not exist at two degrees or more of warming, but the degree to which those voices seem to be really heard and actually influence this massive global system to a degree. So I'm wondering what the experience of being there was like for you and what it felt like when there was an agreement reached, because I think it's easy for people to forget that it wasn't at all clear that there would be a point of agreement. Yeah, no, not at all. And I remember just a few months before Paris, I was in a meeting of a group of women leaders from around the world who were all, despite maybe our differences on the margins, we all were committed to an ambitious agreement. And I remember we were sort of like chewing through the issues, you know, maybe vacillating between 1.5 and 2. Well, is it really important that we get 1.5? Well, no, 2 is politically possible. And I was brought to a halt by three colleagues from the developing world who just stopped us in our tracks. And so I said, look, you know, you say 2 and you say 1.5, but behind 1.5 or 2 is the difference of whether or not my country will will still be there. The difference is whether my culture will survive. And that had the most profound impact on me. And then, you know, I'm I'm in Paris as the vice president of the World Bank and we're trying to make the strongest and most supportive statements we can. And uh, the World Bank did actually acknowledge that uh, we needed to be at 1.5. And, you know, that was a very big deal. And it was an aspirational statement by the bank because we hadn't done the analysis of what that would mean to the World Bank's programming to help the world get to 1.5 at that time. And then I think the other funny thing was that you know, these conferences are complete mazes, right? It's it's like a home expo, but like on steroids. <laughs> and every delegation has an office and it's all prefab and there's bad carpets. And it's, it feels almost like a spaceship to me. It feels like you're on another planet. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, bad food. And you're eating the same baguette every day for like 14 days. But there's a real camaraderie, right? And you're all involved in a common purpose. There was the office of the least developed countries group and not a natural affinity partner for the World Bank, even though we would work in those countries politically. I think they would be suspicious of the World Bank group. We weren't natural bedfellows. But because I'd been working with this group of women behind the scenes, sort of establishing relationships, because it comes down to relationships, I walked past the door and one of these women was actually in the office sitting with the chairman. And she's like, hi. And I'm like, hi, or whatever. And she's like, come on in. And I shook his hand. And then he said to me, I think this is the first time the World Bank Group has ever been in this office at a conference of the parties. And we sort of had a laugh. But I remember it now because everybody has to find a way to work together. If you're going to make 1.5 a reality to stay alive. And I, I think that that's what moves you when you, you're you exhausted and you're negotiating and you're in some strange uh, prefabricated building all day and all night for two weeks. It's the relationships that matter at the end of the day. So, you know, the world is gearing up now for COP26 in Glasgow. Glasgow is due to host the COP26 climate talks. It's a crucial meeting on the future of the planet. It's perhaps the most important gathering since the Paris Agreement. But the challenges are huge. Scientists who keep tabs on our atmosphere report that the level of carbon dioxide is higher now than it's been since long before humans evolved. And if nations don't do more to cut greenhouse gas emissions that are driving climate change, they may soon run up against the outer edges of resilience. So help me understand what's changed in the world and hasn't since the Paris Agreement was reached in 2015. So the fundamental deliverable for this conference of the parties was the ratcheting up of ambition. So in the Paris Agreement, there is a ratchet mechanism, which means that countries would come back and say, OK, we're elevating our ambition. We're going to come back with a new national plan. 
that national plan will be more ambitious in terms of the timeline and the aggressiveness with which we're going to decarbonize our economies and build our adaptation and resilience. So this was to be the occasion when everybody came with their much more ambitious plans. Those much more ambitious plans need to put us closer to a pathway towards one and a half degrees. Well, the reality is that most of those plans are in. Some countries still haven't filed their plans with 40 days to go when I'm speaking to you today and a year overdue, right? <laughs> so some pretty important countries have got to come in with their ratcheted up ambition. And even when they've ratcheted up, we're not going to be on track. We'll be closer, but we're not where we need to be. And so around the sort of hull of that issue is what is everybody else doing to make it more likely that those countries can then in the future get more ambitious? So that is a all of the private sector actors that are coming in and making pledges and claims and sort of saying that they are committed, all of the cities, all of the civil society actions, all of the sort of partnerships around methane and green hydrogen and zero carbon electricity. There's a plurality of initiatives and combinations of scientists and activists and business leaders and governments doing things. And at the heart of it is a negotiation between governments about uh, who is going to do what and who's going to move how quickly. And what's emerged in the last few weeks, I think, is this narrative of like, there's only one planet. And so, yes, there are common but differentiated responsibilities. Yes, the developed world has a responsibility to do more and to help everybody else do more because it caused the problem. But actually, there is prosperity to be achieved in growing greener. And so we've all just got to get on with it. We don't have time anymore to sort of say, well, I'll only move if you will. So that's there. But Glasgow was also about finance. It was about meeting the unfilled promises of the past that the developed world made about how much money it would produce to support action by poorer countries. And then how much more it would produce for the future, because now we really do need to get going. And how it would use its public money to leverage private investment and set the rules that would allow private investment to flow and public investment to flow into developing countries. And we are with aching slowness and creaking forward direction, getting close to maybe arriving at a point where we will fulfill a pledge that was made years and years and years ago for $100 billion of finance to happen every year. And then that number has to increase going forward. But the achingly slow and the creakily established sort of nature of that has really just irritated the developing world because the developing world is sitting there having experienced the rump end of the pandemic economically, not having access to vaccines, not having seen climate finance flowing, not really believing that the developed world is serious when it says it's there to help. And then listening to the developed world saying, well, there's no more coal and there's none of this and there's none of that, but they're not really seeing the support flowing for the things there should be. And so as we go into Glasgow, trust is one of those issues which maybe in slightly short supply. So it sounds like that issue of financing from the richer countries that caused the climate crisis to those in the developing world that are dealing with a lot of the impacts, that that's one marker of success failure in terms of your watching this. I'm wondering what you're looking for going into these talks that will tell you, oh, this went well or this this didn't. I think it would be great if recognizing that we've missed the big jump forward in ambition. Governments agree that they'll come back, not in another five years, but maybe in another two. We know that time is the one thing we don't have. I would like to see, obviously, the box checked on the 100 billion, but much more importantly, I think there's a lot of the new economic architecture for a decarbonized world. And then finally, 
it would be great if we could make progress on how we're going to fund loss and damage. The losses and the damages which are already being experienced by countries and communities because of the climate impacts we're already experiencing. And there is a emerging agreement that there has to be a contribution to those losses and damages by the countries that have polluted our air and, and our, our stratosphere up to now. And that's obviously been hard fought over in negotiations, but that isn't a future conversation anymore. We're now in that moment. We have losses and damages now. I hear that described sometimes as almost like a form of climate reparations. Do you feel mm-hmm. like that's a fair way to describe it? Yeah, I mean, if it wasn't a climate negotiation, that word would probably be used. I mean, if you were just an innocent bystander and you looked at the discussion, you'd say, oh, well, that's reparations. Yeah. But I, there are obviously countries for whom that word has political significance, which is difficult domestically. And those countries don't like that word being used in this context. I want to ask you about the two biggest polluters, both historically and presently, the US and China, and where those countries both stand coming into these talks. In the US, obviously, it's been very politically fraught to get large-scale federal climate action, even though it's been much discussed. And I wonder to what degree that affects the tone of these discussions or not. I think that the United States is back, as President Biden has said, as Special Envoy Kerry has said. There is no doubt that this administration understands the centrality of climate as a challenge domestically and as a challenge in terms of multilateral engagement or how the United States engages around the world. At the same time, we are at the beginning of a new era of a great power rivalry. And so what happened before Paris, where the delicate minuet between the US and China was a very big determinant of success. It is still a determinant of success, but takes place in a very different context. And so the United States now needs to get going with its own transition. It it lost a lot of time during the Trump administration. There's a lot of repairing going along. There's a lot of catching up going on. And then there's some really profound questions about whether the politics of the United States and the extraordinary uh, polarization across a whole range of issues is actually going to get in the way of this sort of very necessary transition within the US economy and the rest of the world watching and the rest of the world regretting really that it has to know so much about midterm elections. China has the same domestic problem. These are big continental powers. So China, again, can engage in the rest of the world. But how China manages its own domestic transition is going to be the the test of whether or not we can get to one and a half degrees. Climate change now shapes geopolitics. Climate change now shapes relationships. So how do those two great powers engage on a world which imperils both of them, an, an issue which imperils both of them, while they are, if not at war, then in an antagonistic relationship on so many other things. I mean, it's difficult to think of another analogy in international relations to this particular moment in time. I can hear you stressing the, not just the importance, but that it's just like absolutely like necessary and critical that there is this global agreement and global conversation around this issue. I mean, there obviously have been people who have criticized the Paris Agreement as not having the teeth that's necessary to really enact change at the speed that's required. Activists and people who are just living through climate 
disasters, which are all over the place all the time now, who are just very frustrated by the kind of slow moving, I was going to say glacial, it's a bad pun, pace of these negotiations <laughs> and commitments. And I guess I'm wondering what you would say to those those critics, um, because I get the sense that, that you still do believe in this process and think that it's that it is essential. I think that if you had a blank sheet of paper, would you design this process? Probably not. But this is where we're at. And it's like the African problem. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. The trick of it is that we have to go fast, far, but we have to go together. And for every extraordinary innovation out there, there are, you know, people who don't have access to even the most basic electricity. And that electricity will have to be clean because they can't afford to be part of the problem. So we've got to bring everybody with us. But I think that if this is the emergency that it is, it is sometimes difficult to understand how you could have a trade discussion one day and then a climate discussion on the next. So it is inconceivable, really, that despite the fact that we know what we know and we understand the extent of the emergency, that this hasn't yet seeped into every part of politics, every part of economic planning and thinking and every part of the way in which we conceive of our alliances and our, our relationships with each other. And so there isn't a sector of the economy that isn't thinking about how to decarbonize by mid-century. But politics still silos this issue out hmm. into an envoy or a minister. And I think that's that's going to have to change in the months to come. What do you think is needed in order to push that shift? What gives you hope? Young people give me hope because they understand this problem as the condition in which we live. And they understand climate as a justice issue alongside the other justice issues that we're tackling in society at the moment. They will have to start electing different leaders and the boardrooms will have to change. And I think part of that will come with generational shift, but we're going to have to demand that of our leaders. You see glimpses of that, but it will have to become more universal. Rachel Kite, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for joining us. No, thank you. That's Rachel Kite. Dean of the Fletcher School at Tufts University and former Vice President and Special Envoy for Climate Change at the World Bank. Next week on Heat of the Moment, this year the whole world was touched by the COVID-19 pandemic and has had to react to the crisis. For many developing countries, this pandemic made difficult situations even worse. But for some, it also was an opportunity. We are a highly resilient people. We are used to facing adversity and indeed overcoming adversity. And that is the spirit in which we are now moving. What the developing world can teach the rest of us about adaptation and innovation. That's next on Heat of the Moment. Heat of the Moment is a partnership between foreign policy and the climate investment funds. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin, Rob Sachs, Scott Andrews, Dan Efron, Laura Rosbrow-Tellum, Claudia Tatey, and Zamone Perez. The Climate Investment Funds is a nonpartisan champion of climate action. Political views and opinions expressed in the series do not necessarily represent those of the Climate Investment Funds, foreign policy, or their partners. Interested in learning more in the run-up to COP26? We're offering free access to a foreign policy analytics team briefing called Firm Zero Emission Power. Normally, that's only available to FP Insider subscribers, but you can read the report for free by submitting your email. Go to foreignpolicy.com slash COP26 to learn more.